Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Great to have you all here today. I'm Ryland Fauna. Yes, the child who your mum always brags about. Anyway, you are listening to the Pelvic Health Podcast and today's episode is all about strength training with Dr. Merv Travers, who is a senior research scholar working in the area of low back pain, tendon pain and exercise rehabilitation at the School of Physiotherapy, the University of Notre Dame, Australia. Merv discusses what exactly strength training is, why it's important for all of our bodies, and how physiotherapists can get their patients started and progressing. This episode is not specific to pelvic floor, although it's weaved into the discussion. And you should be thankful for this, because when does mum stop talking about it? But these concepts and principles still apply to those at risk or those suffering with pelvic floor issues. More about Merv, he completed his PhD at Curtin University, where he also maintains an adjunct research fellow role. His teaching areas include anatomy and exercise rehabilitation. He has a Master's of Manipulative Therapy and is a Qualified Strength and Conditioning Coach, Australian Strength and Conditioning Association Level 2. Merv's clinical background includes working in professional rugby union and he provides clinical consultation for complex musculoskeletal conditions at Staff Physio WA. Merv guest lectures nationally and internationally on the topics of strength and conditioning for physiotherapists and tendinopathy rehabilitation, as well as runs an international strength conditioning course for physiotherapists. So thank you for listening to me struggle through those complicated words, and please sit back and enjoy this amazing episode. I loved finding you at the APA conference um, and not so much stumbling, but I remember seeing the little um, strength training discussion and I thought, okay, I need to get to this talk. I didn't know who you were, sorry. Um, okay. And found your talk. Um, you just did such a good job. You're, you know, obviously very comfortable speaker, but how easy and practical you made the information. And I'm assuming attempting to make physios not be scared and to think about strength training and lifting weight in a different way. And I thought maybe one of the nicest ways to start this conversation is just to maybe talk about why you're interested in trying to get people to lift weights. Why do people need to lift any kind of weight? Yeah, that's a, a, a really great question, and it kind of fits all my biases, kind of why do people need, the word need is a, kind of tickling all my biases, but um, look, I think there are probably two things that kind of stand out for me in, in that is one is from a kind of general health, uh, physical activity point of view, and the second one is around kind of physical capacity and the ability to do work, and so, um, you know, a lot of the general uh, physical activity guidelines have started to integrate the idea of doing weightlifting or strength training um, as part of them. So if you look at the World Health Organization uh, physical activity recommendations uh, for adults um, under 65 and even over 65, uh, it includes the idea of doing large multi-joint strength exercises um, at least twice a week. And so uh, it is really interesting. A lot of the data we have in that space, it comes from large observational studies, so not, not RCTs. And, and there's a really interesting one in uh, 2016 by Dankel and colleagues, and, and they looked at people and their all-cause all mortality, and they found that um, it's not just about meeting the guidelines. It's about actually being strong. So if you met the guidelines... So you were doing strength training a couple times a week, but you were in the low strength group, if you will, mm -hmm. that didn't seem to have a massive effect on people's all-cause mortality. And in fact, if you were strong and not meeting the guidelines, you might say these people who are naturally strong, 
their kind of health uh, status or risk seemed to be better. But it was the group who were strong, so in the higher strength group and actively doing strength training, who seemed to have the lowest all-cause mortality. So there's something about strength and doing strength training that seems to be kind of beneficial across um, these non-communicable disease outcomes, so diabetes, osteoporosis, etc. So I think it's really important that we try and encourage people to incorporate doing strength training as part of their whole kind of physical activity picture. Um, but it's that part of the guidelines that seems to be uh, look, almost forgotten about. So if you look at the data that surveyed surveys physios all over the world, actually, uh, their knowledge of exercise prescription guidelines or physical activity guidelines, uh, where they seem to consistently score very poorly is in, in the area of strength training. So I think, I think it's a wonderful thing that we advocate for a role to um, promote physical activity and strength training as part of that. And, and it's likely that it's related to better health outcomes. But it's really, really important that we as a profession have that competency and understanding on how to do it. Um, so we can probably talk a bit more about how to do that uh, yeah, later. We'll but get the, into that. the other thing that kind of is interesting for me on a societal level is about physical work and, and have we become kind of fragile as a society? Yeah. Well, so when, when you say fragile, what do you mean? by fragile yeah well yeah what is fragile so i think it's interesting um i kind of subscribe to this kind of philosophical idea around anti-fragility um uh, and there's a wonderful book on it by nicholas taleb called anti-fragility and um if we think about something that's fragile like a glass if you if you drop a glass on the ground you know it will likely break so it absorbs an impact and, and, and probably shatters. Um, and if you think about something that's strong, most people think about something like a, a brick or a piece of wood. If I drop it on the ground, it's robust enough to survive. But I don't see that as being the other end of the spectrum from fragile. In fact, if you go a bit further, you can go to anti-fragile, whereby if you drop the brick on the ground, it might survive, but it's no stronger or better from the stress. Ah. Whereas with our physiology, we can stress our system to a certain point and come out the other end actually better for the stress. Mm. So you're not just going to the gym and exercising to survive it, but actually going there, absorbing a stress and responding and coming out better. And I think, uh, you know, humans are geared to be, I think, anti-fragile. And um, but but the way the world is, is really interesting. I, I spoke to a, a colleague recently and he shared with me a story of his mother-in-law, who's a teacher, and she received two new books, two, two, two new textbooks in the mail. Um, and on that uh, package that weighed less than two kilos was a sticker saying, careful, you know, heavy load, mind your back. Hmm. And then I spoke to another friend of mine afterwards uh, who sent me a picture of a laundry basket they had just bought that weighed 1.75 kilos. Uh, and on the packaging for the this flat back flat packed laundry basket, it said, you know, stop, think, lift. For 1.75 kilos. For 1.75 kilos. Okay. And Morning. I think it's really interesting, you know, when we talk about why do strength training, I think yeah. to successfully negotiate our world, there, there, there needs to be a certain level of work capacity, I think. Yeah. And I think we've gotten into this world where we've told everyone over the years to keep their backs straight. Don't lift heavy things. Be really careful, etc. And, and perhaps the pendulum has swung uh, too far. And, and I kind of give a nod to a fabulous uh, bit of work that just came out by Nick Saracini at Curtin University as part of his PhD. So he just published a systematic review um, that looked at this idea of should you lift with a straight back or mm. a bent back and or a flex back and um, they kind of examined the evidence there. And if you look at it, there's two things that really stand out that there isn't a strong grounding of evidence to f behind these kind of manual handling rules that says to everyone, hey, keep your back straight. Um, equally, that doesn't mean that you should lift everything flex, but what it says is those dogmatic rules, you know, don't have the foundation that we think they might have. And, and also the interesting thing for me is that none of the data comes from studies with weights above 12 kilos. And so I think we need to be really mindful that as a society, we're not making ourselves so fragile that we can't even do and so weak that we can't even do the basics of, of, of you know, lifting, you know, relatively light uh, objects. So when we talk about 
lifting and strength training. Um, I know that I've seen some research, you know, there's always that argument about higher volume, lighter load versus heavier load and lower volume. And there's always the argument about which side is better than the other. So when you are talking about strength training and lifting weight, is body weight enough or... Yeah, look, that's that's a really really good question. I think I think you you can get very data driven and say, well, if you're going into the performance world, um, you know, and elite sports and and pure strength outcomes and power outcomes, etc., are really important, then you, the the dosages and the way you do things would need to be much more precise and more refined. But if you were to give a, a you know what in theory sounds like the perfect strength program that's, you know, intensity is matched appropriately, load, rest periods, frequency, all of those different variables have been manipulated absolutely beautifully for Laurie. Uh, but Laurie can't go to the gym and can't do it. Well, then the strength outcome is, strength outcome is going to be zero. Mm. And you may have been better off giving Laurie a body weight program. Okay, yeah. And, and so what I think is really important is that we have to balance you know, the practicalities. And I don't think whenever we're prescribed, or certainly for me, if I'm prescribing exercise to a patient, it's not me saying, Laurie, you need to do this. It's, it's us having a conversation and going, okay, well, what's the best program that we can find that will work for you and that will get done? Yeah. Because it's the program that gets done that 99% of the time is going to result in the best outcome. And yeah. so there's nothing wrong with a bodyweight strength program if that's the best decision that you and your patient come to collectively together. Yeah. It, will that Would that still be included in the strength training based on the World Health Organization for the two times a week of strength training? Yeah, so, so it's interesting what, what gets in the different, not just in the World Health Organization guidelines, but in the different kind of national level guidelines mm. that go around, they are different. And in some of the guidelines, in, you know, kind of more explicitly say, listen, strength training is, is kind of lifting weights or moving with resistance bands or using your own body weight resistance. Some of the other guidelines actually include, look, you know, doing household chores and maybe working in the garden and picking up your groceries, for example, fall into that category. And so it's a bit broader and slacker. And, and there's a debate ongoing as to whether or not the emphasis should really be pushed towards that heavier side mm -hmm. of, of things. Um, and, you know, for what it's worth, I, I probably sit somewhere on the spectrum towards suggesting, look, people probably need to be pushing towards heavier, you know, towards lifting weights or using resistance to uh, optimize those strength outcomes. But I think body weight resistance exercise is a perfectly uh, good thing to encourage within the mass populace. From a rehab point of view, it can be a great option often to get things started with an idea to progression. But for some people, it might be the totally appropriate choice and the practical thing that gets done. Yeah. Now, if we take practicality aside and say they're going to do whatever you want them to do, they have access to everything. At what point does body weight and resistance bands become not enough for somebody? Yeah. Okay. It's a great question. So you just, if you had the absolute ideal, perfect, <laughs> the, the, the unicorn who walks into the clinic and there are no barriers, right? No barriers. Um, and they will be adherent with everything you tell them to do. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a ton of work done looking at this. In fact, even this this week, there was a systematic review uh, published looking at trying to identify that minimal doses that's required to optimize strength. And I know Brad Schoenfeld's group have done an mm. enormous amount of work in this space as well. And if you look broadly at that, the suggestion is if the outcome is for strength, um, you would look to move towards less repetitions, kind of one to six reps with a higher intensity. Um, so you'd be looking at you know, above 80% of 1RM, certainly at that point, or closer to a fatigue point at the end of a set, um, probably looking towards uh, three to five sets with a slightly longer rest and kind of accumulating 10 sets over the week. But it's kind of very broad brushstrokes. Yeah. You know, there, there are definitely other considerations that go in the mix. And, and of course, that might not be the ideal starting point for someone on their very first day in the gym. And so there is that, that caution that needs to be applied. Not that we should be fearful of lifting weights or heavy weights at all, but you want to uh, instill a degree of competency uh, in uh, a person in the gym before they start trying to, you know, max out. If, if strength is an outcome that's being chased, the lifting needs to be effortful. 
And there, there are a ton of different systems that can be used in order to match the intensity uh, to the individual. There, there have been some studies that have looked at trained and untrained people and put them at 70% of their 1RM uh, as per, you know, a lot of the guidelines suggest that's kind of where you could start your lifting. Um, and, you know, instead of being able to do kind of 12 or 15 repetitions at that level, the person goes and knocks out, you know, 30, 35 repetitions. And that's a problem because what you think you're prescribing isn't matched at all to the effort level of the individual. And what they're capable of. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so so it's really, really important. And I'm not saying that um, going by percentage is the wrong way to mm. go. And, and certainly the data shows in people who are more well-trained, if you will, have been lifting for longer. And especially if you're kind of, you know, at that percentage of 1RM, kind of, you know, 90% and above, the, that mismatch between how many repetitions one would predict and what they can actually do is probably much much smaller Um, but then again it's probably not the appropriate starting place for for someone first time I think um, that's one of the challenges with that 70% of 1RM guideline is is, is one prescribing off testing and prescribing off percentage is really time consuming in the clinic so that's I think a barrier that a lot of people say to me look I don't do that so much because it takes so much time or they don't have equipment Exactly right. Yeah, we and we all have those resource limitations, of course. And then also, even if you do have the resources and you do have the time, if you give someone twelve reps to do at seventy percent of their one RM and they could do forty repetitions, then like you've missed the mark a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so none where, of the systems are perfect. Where should we start with people? And say you're a physio and you're treating somebody for uh, knee, back, you know. Yes, this is a podcast on the pelvis, and we'll kind of bring pelvic floor into it. Um, But, I mean, often it's not really that different. We need to try to do strength training twice a week. Where do you start? If they've never done it before... Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's, it's obviously entirely different. If someone's never done it before versus someone who's a long history in the gym, you know, those starting points, those entry mm. points, it's a, it's a very, very different conversation. And, and someone who's very familiar doesn't need the kind of gym environment demystified. And I think mm. certainly for me, you know, from an experiential point of view, what I think is most important to start with is to make people unafraid of being in the gym demystify the idea of uh you know having a bar across your shoulders and being in a squat rack and being comfortable with that environment and also being safe and i think a lot of the patients i've dealt with in the past when they're kind of stepping into the gym for the first time have a lot of fears around the environment and and, and the safety and so i don't know where the quote comes from I, i can't remember where i was first told it but someone once said to me you know, when you're dealing with a novice lifter, it's like a full tube of toothpaste. It doesn't matter which way you squeeze them, you're going to get some output from it. <laughs> and But when you're dealing with more experienced lifters, you know, it's like the empty tube where you got to squeeze it just right to get something. Yeah. And I, I always think about that, you know, you know, it might be a gross oversimplification, but if I'm getting someone started in the gym, uh, you know, for the very first time, I'm not shooting to be overly precise in terms of, rep sets, intensity, yeah. you know, rest periods of frequency, et cetera, so all those different variables. I shoot for a very, very simple first phase, and I call it the safety phase. Hmm. I'll have picked a movement that I think is appropriate for that person. And let's just say, for whatever reason, we've decided that you need to go to the gym, and the exercise of choice is a split squat. All I'm trying to achieve in that very first say, phase is that you can do a split squat, squat and feel comfortable and safe doing it that's it and so that might entail doing it with body weight for one person or Mm. might entail just showing one another person how to safely rack and unrack the bar have it on their shoulders and do it with just that weight And, and and the sense of effort is very much secondary to the primary objective of just feeling safe and comfortable in doing so and that safety phase depending on the individual could last a couple of minutes yeah. Or it could last a couple of weeks. So there might be someone you do that with who, you know, after doing a few repetitions, a couple of sets of body weight, go, look, I'm pretty, and you've refined maybe their foot position or whatever else, you know, they're probably good to move on. And there's other people who, you know, are still struggling with balance doing it, needing to hold onto a wall or a piece of equipment while doing it. And you need to go, okay, go off and practice that for a couple of sessions and then come back and move on. So I, I think about it in that first phase is about mm-hmm. safety. 
And once that person is safe and comfortable, not having any issues doing it, I'll move into the second phase, which is what I call the competency phase. Can I can I backtrack for a second? And sure. before we get to the competency phase, even before the safety phase, how have you decided what one exercise that you want them to work on? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. And there's a couple of ways of looking at it, right? Because if I put my physio anatomy hat on, I'll say, well, this person, let's say, has a quadriceps injury and therefore I want to um, work on and pick an exercise they can do that biases the quadriceps or works the quadriceps in some way. But if you if I look at it from a kind of movement-y, strength and conditioning type person, well, then you might say, well, I want this person to do a front lunge or a rear lunge or a split squat because you're trying to emphasize um, either deceleration of the body or acceleration of the body. So there's there are different mm. targets you might shoot for, yeah. of course. So say someone be- has to lift children, what would you give them? Do you pick a squat or a deadlift? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, why not both? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so in your safety phase, do you sometimes, do you usually just go, okay, let's pick one exercise, we'll work on it, or you do a couple? Yeah. Look, and that depends the person. I, I almost always pick one. For the yeah. very first time, for the first person, yeah. I'll pick one in that safety phase and say, look, you know, let's say you decided you want a hinge pattern, and so we're going to work on deadlifting, or we're going to work on, you know, you want a squat pattern, so we're going to work on a bodyweight squat or, or whatever yeah. it might be. I'll, I'll usually pick one yeah. and say, look, let's just work on that. Because what can happen then is you can have moved that one on to the competency phase you know, the next day or weeks or whatever yeah. down the road and you slot another one in that's in the safety phase. You just build that program yeah. progressively. I don't think you can throw multiple different uh, multi-joint exercises at people to learn for the first time. Um, you know, some people may be able to, of course, yeah. um, but particularly in the context of injury or pain, etc. And also in the context of time. We are limited mm. by the amount of time we have in our consults and that's just a, a practical reality. So I think you got to make that you know, prioritize, prioritize a singular movement or exercise, say, right, let's get safe uh, at that one. Then yeah. when we move on to competency on that, we'll bring in another one into safety phase. And, yeah. and that's the key thing is not to think about trying to build this perfect program day one, but you develop it iteratively because you might send someone off to practice a squat or a deadlift or whatever else. And they might come back and, oh, look, you know, this is hurting me here or I'm having a problem with this or whatever else. And you might decide, okay, that's maybe not an appropriate choice to start with or it might require modification and that's okay and it's, it's really important that that conversation's had that the, you can't necessarily predict that and that the patient knows that you're going to build this program iteratively and that their feedback is really important and their involvement of the process is really important and their preferences are really important in it um, and that it will evolve but over time it transitions to being a more uh, uh, refined program shall we say mm, yep um, okay, so they go through the safety phase with their one exercise, and then what is the competency phase? It really sounds like a gross oversimplification, but for me, it's as simple as this. You're trying to add some weight. You know, let's say, for example, you've sent the person off to do some bodyweight split squats or um, or some bodyweight squats, and then you've decided, okay, we're safe, we're comfortable, let's teach you how to rack and unrack a bar safely, and teach you how to work the spotting arms or etc. all the necessary kind of things that, that will help make the person feel comfortable and safe in the environment. They go, well, let's, let's just try it with the bar and let's just drip feed a little bit of weight. And let's say you've decided I want you to do eight repetitions or 10 repetitions. I, I set the limit in the competency phase that at the end of doing their eight or 10 repetitions, that person could feel like they could comfortably do three more. Yeah, of one set. And Of one set, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the key thing is that you know, of course, you could you could you could make arguments go. Well, how accurate is that person in predicting, yeah. etc.? And, and the answer is probably not very accurate at that point, and that's fine. The idea is that they have some resistance, yeah, but they're well below what their you know limits are, yeah. and they're getting competent in that movement with weight. You know, they 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 will possibly overbalance one way or another, all those types of things, and they'll just get competent and capable of doing that. So it's a reinforcement of the movement. It's a reinforcement of the safety. And it's just an addition of a comfortable load, but the person is still working a little bit. And you have that you have them doing it at home? Well, yeah, I mean, if it's a home-based yeah. program, sure. If it's if it's if it's a gym-based program, it gets done there. Yeah, and yeah. Ever, do you get them in the competency phase to work on because they're doing low 
kind of load? Would you want them doing it every day or every second day? Or Yeah, in the competency phase, they should be reasonably familiar. So in the safety phase, if it's just a body weight thing, I'm quite mm-hmm. happy for them to do, you know, several days a week, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, and just kind of learn the movement. In the competency phase, they've got a bit more um, – uh, a bit more weight on things and also the practicalities of for example if you've used that to transition the person into going to the gym i think mm-hmm. asking the person to go to the gym every day every at that day, point yeah. is yeah that, that's kind of a hard sell i, I actually yep. just try and replicate what the program would look like so if yeah. i'm going to have them in the gym two, two or three a times week. a week let's say i'll say go there do that and then get out yep and so they'll go in and they'll maybe do their three or four sets of eight to ten repetitions with a little bit of weight and 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 the key thing is that we determine that weight together and through a conversation in the clinic and testing it and trying it but they always feel at the end of a given set they could do a few more reps yeah yeah and you said too i think in the talk that um you love giving them a recipe as well and there's a balance to be struck there because like mm. when you say people need a recipe, that doesn't mean you've got the singular program or singular recipe you can kind of give to everyone all the time. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. But, but what they need is a plan they can follow. Mm. So, so if they go to the gym and it just says do three sets of 10 squats, well, how long is the rest period? Mm. And, and how, how much weight should they have on? And yeah. you know how many days a week should they be doing? And, and all of those various different things. And I, I think, what it needs to be clear if, if 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 you told me to go bake a cake and I asked you, well, what are the ingredients? And you said, well, you know, flour, cocoa, milk, eggs, salt, sugar, whatever. If I just throw a load of that in a bowl and mix it up and throw <laughs> it in the oven, <laughs> I'm really hoping for the best. Yeah. But if you say, hey, look, it's going to be 200 grams of this and 100 grams of that, and you're going to whisk it together, you put it in the oven for this long at this temperature, maybe I've got a chance at the outcome we're shooting for. Yeah. So then it definitely requires that guidance. You know, the people people really, really need that guidance. But of course, they also need to be free enough to have that autonomy to maybe make some changes or or suggest some changes or or have some flexibility in what they're doing. And I think that that comes with um you know i think again i've heard it said in the past that really effective coaches make themselves redundant over time yeah and i i think that's really really true that's yeah. really really true and and i see myself less as a physio over time as it was less a physio more of a project manager and their and their role in that process is is central and i rely so heavily on their feedback but certainly in the early stages when someone's yeah. never done it before and they've never been there they absolutely need guidance and by yeah. doing that and making them comfortable in the environment then you've got a chance of it being a long-term sustainable um program that gets done yeah so from competency phase then what do you have them doing where do you go from there yeah, so I go from competency phase, and again, again, much like I said with the safety phase, the competency phase, its duration is going to be really individual, you know. And that, that sounds like I'm being really loose with the rules and saying you got to play it as you see it, but you do have to play it as you see it because some people's competency phase might be, you know, a week or two, which might be two, three, five sessions in the gym, and yeah. some people's competency phase could be a month or longer. Yeah. Some people, you know, if you had, if you have a uh, advanced level athlete but the exercise is reasonably novel for them their competency phase their competency window might be a little bit shorter because they yeah. you know have a grounding and doing it so, so it is individual so once you move from the competency phase i go into what i call the drip feed phase and the drip feed phase is really really simple again this is for someone who's never been in the gym before let's say you've set a target number of repetitions i want you to do 10 repetitions in a set and you've been in the competency phase and you've been working well below the point of um, uh, momentary failure. So yeah. you've not hit failure at any point. So what I want to start doing is to just drip feed weight each session until you start to get closer to that failure point. It could take some people weeks to mm. get or even a, a month or two to get to that, that point. Um, but of course, remembering, of course, remembering that uh, – you know, as I said, that, that full tube of toothpaste is still going to get some gains and, yeah. and some positive responses in that time. And again, they're reinforcing the movement and getting comfortable. Um, but you've not set this person off and said, hey, listen, now go do this and I won't see you for the next few months because you may be layering in other exercises that are in both the safety and competency phase and you're building that those are exercises part of the program. Uh, and I think it's really important to do that. I think, I think it's, it's important that uh, patients aren't just going to the gym and doing the same thing every single day in the gym, just from a boredom point of view. But also, if, for example, you only teach them to squat 
and then they have some problem that kind of precludes them from squatting temporarily, you haven't given them another option they can switch to. But if you have them squatting on one day and split squatting on another and pushing a single leg leg press on the third day, let's say, in the gym, and for whatever reason they say, look, squatting is giving me a problem, that's fine. We can slot one of the other exercises that you're doing in its place temporarily, and so you can keep that shit moving forward. So you kind of build a degree of redundancy in your program by doing that, but also I think you stave off boredom. So when someone's in the drip feed phase, they might be in the drip feed phase for their squat, but doing a competency phase for their front lunge or rear lunge or whatever else. Yep. And then once you've kind of reached that level where you're getting them to do a few sets to fatigue at that kind of 10 repetitions, do you take them further? Yeah. So so the key thing at that point is you're saying, hey, look, what momentary failure is, is the point where I feel like I'd have to cheat or I'd, I'd fail out the next concentric rep. It is not at the point where they have the nosebleed and are semi-passing out, manage to force out the rep, their mate takes the weight off them, and then they pass out on the floor. I think they've pushed the boat out too too far at that yeah. point. So it's very clear that you've set what that what that limit point is, yeah. um, and that's really important. But then if they've got to that point, what, will ha- what you'll find is if they've got a couple of exercises coming through the drip feed phase, they'll get to that point um, at a different time. So they might hit one exercise, might hit that point after two or three weeks, another one might be a week or two behind. Mm. So you can actually sit them there for a few weeks until they get to the point where, hey, those three or four exercises or you've given me to do across the week, um, they're all reaching that point now. Yep. So so I'd, I'd kind of wait until they've gotten those big primary exercises all at or approximating that point. Yep. And then I would move into a, what I call strength phase one. You're, you're starting to move to a, a program that's more consistent with, with you know, strength training parameters, etc. And so you might decide, look, we were working on 10s. I'm going to bring it down to 8s, for yep. example. So you might do multiple sets of 8, repetition set of 10, and you're going to work to that momentary failure point again. And so they may then... Um, increase that intensity so they're going to lose lift a little bit more weight than they're doing at 10 but you could you could legitimately put them on a flat structure and have them do several weeks where they just sit there on three sets of eight Um, or you could probably put in some kind of linear progression at that point where you go okay you did three you did a week at three sets of 10 and then you might do a week at three sets of eight and then you might do a week that has you move to sixes for example or and as that uh repetit number of repetitions comes down they add a little bit more weight and again where you you could legitimately use momentary failure as a as a as a, as a limit point there and i think we should have a chat about these ways of uh, of determining intensity in, in yeah. a moment but i think you could legitimately do that and maybe cycle people through a linear progression that moves from from you know tens eight sixes and back up you could you could roll someone through that a couple of times and again at that point, and this could have taken several months, you're starting to get that person a little bit more gym savvy, a little bit more comfortable and confident there. And they are moving towards strength training and, and you should see some outcomes associated with that. So this is where sometimes I wonder if people, or at least if physios, um, then pass them on to a different professional to continue or if they're then into a group class or do they, because you're strength and conditioning, they come back and see you often yeah it's a it's a, it's a really really good question i think it depends on the individual i think i think as a profession we need to define our box mm. and be the best we can be within that and i think we have to have the confidence to put our hand up and ask for help yeah and i've worked with some fabulous strength and conditioning coaches over the years who know way more about this than me and they're way way better than me. And I really think that certainly in that performance end of the spectrum where you're looking at velocity-based training and you know plyometrics and looking at te- you know technical failure on on more complex lifts as ways of setting intensity, etc., you know, that's just not the physio realm. And and even as a strength and conditioning coach, because I've worked largely in that re- more rehab and middle end of the spectrum, you know, I would certainly be looking for help and guidance, and I would be likely working collaboratively with someone else at that point. And I think it's really important because if we if we have the confidence to put our hand up and work collaboratively with people who know more about this than we do, you know, you're looking at optimizing that outcome for the patient, which I think has to be the priority. Yeah. But also 
you know, for me, I've learned so much by working with these people. So it's an opportunity to learn from the the coach of that sport and to learn from the, you know, maybe strength and conditioning person or exercise physiologist or whomever um, can give that appropriate guidance. I think you can't be everything to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really, really important. And, you know, exercise physiologists and, and, and strength and conditioning uh, people are, are, are fabulous at what they do. Mm. You know, and, and so what's really important here is, you know, from looking kind of more broadly at exercise and certainly the way I was trained as a physio and and coming through the system, um, the emphasis on exercise was very much around that acute stage, early management, just kind of getting people moving, but didn't really seem to progress beyond that. And it's not a criticism in any way. It's more a case of, look, this is kind of where as as a profession we've positioned ourselves. But if you think about it on a spectrum from, from injury on one end and rehabilitate acute rehabilitation on one end to kind of high performance on the other and kind of in the middle there is also your generalized physical activity and exercise for health and mental health benefits as well um there's a broad spectrum there and i think physios are very well positioned with a little bit of upscaling and and experience in, in the exercise realm to kind of you know, provide a really important societal service, both at the injury, acute rehabilitation level, and right through to the physical activity, generalized activity, and and, and from a sports point of view, progression of rehab out of the acute phase. But I I do think still that that further end of the spectrum towards performance is is a more specialized thing, and it's it's simply someone else's job. Um, And what's really interesting is even... um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have worked um, in professional rugby in the past and worked with some fabulous strength and conditioning coaches. And and what would be, what's really interesting is even if I knew lots about strength training and rehabilitation towards that kind of higher end performance, in those environments where that would actually be relevant, there would still be someone there who does that better than me whose job it is. Hmm. So knowing that almost would still be kind of yeah. redundant. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I think I think we need to have the the confidence as a profession to know where our limits are, be the best we can be at what we do, but to work collaboratively. From a from an injury point of view or tissue point of view, where it is like we know strength training is part of our uh, guidelines because it's important for our health and it keeps us strong and it's good for our balance. Um, how does it help our tissues? From a physical point of view, what does strength training and lifting heavy weight do for us? That's a really, really good question. I actually think whilst there are people who are working on some of the mechanisms underpinning it, I don't think we fully understand, you know, all of the mechanisms involved. And I think, but I think the biggest thing is that it builds capacity for work. I would dare say we might be best moving away from an idea where we look at how it does that in the tissues and look more mm. globally at how that actually happens. Because exercise is, is, is an interesting thing. If I can digress very briefly on this, there was a really excellent um, paper that a colleague pointed out to me um, that was done about 10 years ago where they got a bunch of, I think they were all women, working as chambermaids in hotels. And so their job was, you know, they're on their feet and they're moving and they're lifting and they're carrying things and they're, and they're kind of reasonably active. And what was really interesting is they, they split the groups. And they told one group uh, and they tracked their activity, et cetera, et cetera. And they told one group, you know, you know, your job's pretty physical. You're you, you're, you're kind of like an athlete. Like you're on the move all day. You're lifting stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And they didn't tell the other group. And so what was really interesting is when they tracked them over time after that information, the group that were kind of had their activity levels in their mind, I suppose, reframed to be quite an athletic endeavor. Their body weight decreased, their uh, percentage of body fat decreased, their blood pressure markers all improved. And so what was really interesting is they had all these kind of, if you will, desirable health outcomes just by suddenly kind of reframing in their minds that what they're doing was actually probably pretty beneficial for them. But not changing anything physically. Yeah, without changing wow. what they were doing. So they didn't start doing more and they were, you know, yeah. start to maintain their diet and all that kind of stuff in the same way. So so it's really interesting. I think I think the danger is if we start to think about exercise as purely just being about the tissues, I think we really miss sight of that. And actually, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm really, really fortunate to have to be working with a PhD student at the moment, Miles Murphy, who's who's just doing a magnificent job. And and he published a systematic review in, in sports medicine last year where he got all of the loading program uh, or all the uh, studies that use loading programs for Achilles tendinopathy and he combined all of the patient trajectories or all uh, from each of the studies 
And what's really interesting is you see pretty much all of them start to head uphill or improve within that first two weeks. And, you know, so that means people's pain and function is improving, you know, pretty early on and pretty mm. quickly and probably earlier than we would expect there to be changes in the tendon and yeah. changes in the muscle, for example. So so if you're to ask me what's driving that, uh, you know, mechanistically, I have absolutely no idea, but it's certainly not just about what's happening in the tissues. And yeah. I think we have to think about in the context of injury and pathology or even uh, like you've used this idea of women's health, so maybe thinking postpartum, there's got to be a part of this that has to be about your know, self-efficacy and the confidence to do things. So building capacity and understanding that your body can work and move again and overcoming barriers and maybe even overcoming some of those societal messages that have said look you can't do this anymore but actually demonstrating to oneself experientially that you know i actually can do this and habituating to those loads and, and kind of building capacity and, and becoming anti-fragile if i want to bring it back to to kind of fit my my biases so mm. so i suppose your question was what is strength training doing to the tissues in terms of injury and pathology I don't know, actually, is the answer to that, but I think it's doing much, much more than just working on the tissues. I mean, I'm in this fortunate position where I, I get to kind of fly around the world and teach physios how to, you know, do gym-based rehab. And one of the common things that I see is that we find ourselves prescribing exercise to the limits of our knowledge or the limits of our resources. So... Um, I only have a TheraBand and I don't know how to go to the gym so that person's getting a TheraBand-based exercise. Mm. Now, a TheraBand-based exercise shouldn't be entirely demonized because it might be the only appropriate practical choice, et cetera, as we kind of discussed already. But equally, if it doesn't align with what that patient needs, then it's maybe not the most appropriate choice. And so you were saying about limitations and 15 kilo weight limits for lifting that's a real problem if that doesn't align with that person's life and lifestyle. Mm. And so I think what we need to be able to do is, is, is have the confidence to engage with the doctors, surgeons, physios, nurses, whomever is involved, the exercise physiologists, to have a conversation go, well, no, look, how do we actually build a progressive rehabilitation program that brings this person to the level that they are looking to or back to that desired uh, value task. And so your program is built upon the needs of the individual, not the limitations of your knowledge base and resources. And we all have resource and, 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 and knowledge based limitations, of course. So that's yeah. why working collaboratively, collaboratively is so important and including the patient in that. I kind of spoken about with the safety phase excuse me, you're just getting the person to do the movement. And yeah. with the competency phase, you're trying to add a little bit of load, but it's very, very submaximal. Mm. And then saying on a drip feed phase, you've set a target number of repetitions and you're going to move that person, you know, progressively until they kind of reach um, momentary failure uh, at or or close to that. So if, they, if it happens on the ninth rep instead of the 10th rep, no big deal is kind of close enough in that phase. Yeah. And then, then you kind of, can find yourself at a crossroads whereby the person has now been lifting for several months and is getting kind of competent and stronger. And, and you could make that decision as to whether do I strength test and program by percentage or do I continue to um, work to, you know, momentary failure or do I use RPE as a way of, of, measuring intensity and so it's probably worth kind of touching on those things because all of the systems have pros and cons so with percentage-based stuff as we said already unfortunately especially if you're dealing with you know lower percentages especially not in highly trained people the number of repetitions you think that person can do and the number they can actually do can, can kind of very, be very mismatched yeah and also testing can be um a very time-consuming process hmm. and also then prescribing based on percentage can then be in predicting an all-out over several weeks that can be a bit daunting i think for some people and also time-consuming if you don't have those systems all automated it doesn't mean it's it's not the right thing to do it just means there are challenges and barriers there likewise if you say someone i want you to lift at a seven out of ten intensity or an eight out of ten intensity you know in that kind of subjective realm 
there are some real problems. And I remember uh, in being younger and, and back when I was trying to play sports and all those types of things, and we used to be subjected to lots of different strength tests and various things all the time. Uh, one of the worst experiences in my life was having to do tests at 60% of 1RM to absolute failure. So they'd get 60% of your bench press or 60% of your squat or whatever else it would be. And some of these tests go in and out of vogue at various different times, but that was mm. that was what was there at the time. Uh, and, and they get you to do as many reps as you can until you can't go anymore, until you, yeah. And so it, it's pretty unpleasant. And, and what's really interesting is if you look at some of the studies, both in trained and untrained people, you get them at 60%, 70% of their 1RM bench press squat, and they hammer out a ton of repetitions. And for me, at that point, I kind of want to die. But you ask those people in the studies, um, you know, what was your RPE? And they go, it was a seven. And so <laughs> that's a problem. Um, yeah. And there's also, it seems to be different if it's upper body or lower body. And there's, you know, ironically, in some of the studies, when they're working at higher percentages, the RPEs are lower than working at lower percentages. So when it's heavier, people are saying the RPE is, is less. And, and that has to do with the reps done. And so it gets complex. And, and what, what if you don't know be, what a 10 out of 10 is? And, and your 10 out of 10 is going to be different than my 10 out of mm. 10 because our lived experiences and all those things. So yeah. it's really hard to standardize that. And, and, and I understand because some people say, you know, it's easy and it's quick. Hey, just lift something that's, you know, an 8 out of 10 or a 7 out of 10. And look, you could possibly do that in a safety and a competency phase mm. scenario, but it's a hard thing to control. And yeah. so getting further down the road, it's probably not what, I, what I'd advocate for. Um, but equally with momentary failure, you know, I probably don't want people lifting to failure all the time hmm. and use and from athletes and from various different things. And lots of the studies do that. But of course, in the studies, they're controlled and people are put in these environments where they're not trying to do other things. But if you have someone, you know, if you have a, a marathon runner who's going to lift to failure every time he's in the gym, for example, and then feels like he's got lead boots on when he's running. Hmm. Well, I think, you, you know, your rehab program is meant to facilitate their sport, not be a barrier. And so there's <laughs> yeah. all of these different different things you have to consider and so and even there's some some you know there was a meta-analysis recently suggesting that perhaps training to to fatigue is actually suboptimal for strength outcomes and uh, maybe particularly so in more well-trained people so as you get more well-trained it might not be the optimal way and so it's tricky because you want to lift hard and heavy you want you want it to be sufficient intensity to get an optimal stimulus but you don't want to over fatigue the person etc uh, etc et and so there is a system that i think a lot of physios might be unfamiliar with called repetitions in reserve mm. which has been more in vogue in gathering steam in the strength and conditioning literature in the last couple of years and and it's not one that i think most when i speak to physios about it they've generally not heard about it mm. and the idea behind repetitions with repetitions in reserve briefly and if you look at, if you want more information, look at the studies done by Helms. Uh, the idea is that you're lifting to a point where it's pretty hard, but you've got one or two repetitions in the bank at all times. Is that like the competency phase, sort of? It is, but it's much more precisely tested. Okay. Rather than it being a subjective thing where I think I've got two or three reps in reserve. Okay. What actually ends up happening when you when you do this with a lot of people is they'll say, I think I've got two or three reps in reserve and reserve. And you go, okay, now show me how many have you got in reserve. And they end up knocking out seven, nine, 11 That's repetitions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so so what ends up happening is we, we're very often lifting further from that threshold than we think. Mm. And so what it takes a bit of time and takes a, take, takes a bit of prep, preparation so the um, patient or the client you're working with understands the system. But what you can say is I want you to lift at an eight out of ten. And what an 8 out of 10 means is at the end of that set, I could do two more reps, hmm. which means occasionally they need to go to the end of that set thinking that they can do two more and then try and do as many as they can. Yeah. And if it turns out they can do 17 more, that, that weight needs refinement. And so it's, you know, I, I probably can't go through all the ins and outs of, yeah. of, of repetitions reserve in the context of a podcast, but I yeah. do encourage um, the listeners to, to, to check it out as a system because it is, it bridges that gap between like the user friendliness and also the being more precise and bringing someone close to their limit, but not quite having them at fatigue. Mm. So it's, it's, it's quite a, it, it seems to be quite a nice system, um, and so I, I think it's a nice one to work for. And it's one that I'm I'm using with some people. So I certainly have people who are working off percentages and I certainly have people who are working off repetitions in reserve. Yeah. Do you advise physios to go do strength and conditioning courses? 
Well, okay. I, I declare my conflict of interest, right? I declare of my course, conflict of yes. interest, of course, because I because I teach strength and conditioning courses for physios. Yeah. So, I oh, declare, do you? I, I didn't that. even know that. See? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> but, but I, I do think it is an important thing because I think, yeah. as I said earlier, physios are usually very, very good and very well trained at that kind of yeah. left end of the spectrum towards early injury rehabilitation, but don't get that much exposure to exercise rehabilitation beyond then. Yeah. And 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 that is something that requires, I think, a bit more training in. And I think if physios do have more training in that area, we can fill a bigger societal role with respect to physical activity and exercise and not just think about exercise being a component of rehabilitation. We're not just waiting for people to get sick or injured to um, have a role in that space, but actually to be able to encourage it and facilitate it in the absence of pain, pathology, injury, illness, etc., and look, I'm very lucky here in the University of Notre Dame. Uh, we've just um, had a fabulous new gym commissioned and a lot of the stuff we're talking about has been majorly integrated by my colleagues into our undergraduate program. And, the, oh, and I'm really looking for, uh, look, I'm really looking forward yeah. to seeing what our, our, our future graduates are, are going to look like. Cause I think they'll have yeah. a much deeper and broader skill set when it comes to exercise rehabilitation and, and this whole gym environment and all these things, hopefully a largely demystified for them and b having a more practical and theoretical background that they can bring to the table for their for their patients so we're really really uh, fortunate to, to have that here and my colleagues have done a, a fabulous job uh, in that space and so yeah i think um I think the future is bright if, if, if we can kind of bridge those gaps. Yeah. So obviously I didn't stalk you well enough beforehand. Um, if, do you do outside courses or is it just within the university? So if people are listening no, and they're yeah. in Australia... Yeah, well, thank you very much if, if, for the opportunity to plug things then. Um, yeah, so I, I run a company called Optimize Rehab. I, I, I actually am running a, a course in, in Perth uh, this weekend, yep. probably my, my final one for, for, for 2020 or 2019 when I wrap up, but I, I run them all over the world. In the, at least in the women's health world, I don't think enough of us understand um, enough about strength training. And we're really good at being able to go, well, maybe we should bring breath in here, or pelvic floor in here. But if you really don't know what is out there and what you can do with your patients and you're not doing it for yourself, like you said, I think, you know, at least taking a course or a, a applying all these principles you talked about today to yourself first and working out what you need to do, I think would be extremely beneficial. Absolutely. I think the other thing is, you know, by having a, a, you know, both a background and doing it practically, but also having, you know, updated theoretical knowledge, you Mm. can then say, look, this is what the ideal is. And it's funny because you were asking me earlier about what does the ideal program look like? And I think you can always have in your mind what the ideal program is. And, and, you know, you'll have more refined information in that space. And then you're trying to mold that to match to uh, what, uh, you know, a patient or person can do in their lives. So you've got that anchor that's kind of closer to the ideal but nonetheless the real world will dictate what the program looks like always does thank you so much for your time and for your extra time i know that you're really busy but i really appreciate all your information um and again i'm gonna go and do some more searching of all your other research (laughs) yeah no problem at all thank you so much for having me it was a real pleasure and uh, always happy to talk about these things and today's episode is all about Strength can strength conditioning. <laughs> I haven't even made it past past the second sentence. Today's episode is all about strength training with Dr. Merv Travers, who is a senior research scholar working in the area of low back pain. And Merv guest lectures nationally and internationally on the topics of strength and conditioning for physiotherapists and tendinopathy rehabilitation. <laughs> what? <laughs>